0: Today's Old Testament lesson is from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, verses 27 to 34. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of humans and the seed of animals. And just as I have watched over them to pluck, them, pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring evil, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord, in those days they shall no longer say the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge but all shall die for their own sins the teeth of everyone who eats sour grapes shall be set on edge the days are surely coming says the lord when i will make a new covenant with the house of israel and the house of judah it will not be like the covenant that i made with their ancestors when i took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they, will sh- and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God.
1: Amen. Thank you, Alex, for reading our lesson today. And again, what a joy and privilege it is to be with each of you. I want to thank all of our liturgists. Uh, Thank you, Shelby, for your prayer. Laura. Megan, for your word, and God forgive James for taking Megan's parking place today. Uh, But it was uh, good of you, Megan, to confess for James. I know he appreciates that as well. Uh, If you're just joining us today and you missed last Sunday, uh, we are continuing today the second Sunday in this series entitled Lessons from the Quarantine. And I wanna also express thanks to Lauren Poe for sharing her insights during these last several months with us from her point of view as a teacher. I had the privilege of being a part of Lauren's Bible study on Zoom a few weeks ago and really appreciate her spirit and her sharing with us this morning. As we continue to struggle and adapt to the effects of the uptick of this virus, I thought it would be a helpful thing, I hope it is a helpful thing, to take a closer look at what I think is the most painful era in the history of Israel. And of course, I'm talking about what we call the exile, the loss of temple, the loss of the place of worship, the place of gathering, the loss of land that God had promised, the loss of heritage, the change of landscape that they were experiencing, and in fact, the loss of culture. What a difficult time they were having. In fact, all of this stress in Israel, in Judah, seems to imply that perhaps their faith has been misplaced. The exile is a crisis which I think is a form of cognitive dissonance. Some of you have heard that term. It was coined by Leon Festinger, social psychologist. Cognitive distance is when your view of reality and reality itself no longer coincide. They don't match up, creating disparity. And such disparity often leads to despair, but it can also lead to revision, to to innovation, and even to renewal. For the Jews in Babylon, it actually did both, and so it is often with a crisis. A crisis tends to shock our equilibrium in ways that force us to recalibrate and recenter our perspective and our worldview. It's similar to what cardiologists call cardioversion, which is a treatment for those who have arrhythmia In other words, their heartbeat is abnormal, and so they apply the electrodes to their chest in order to shock the heart back into its rhythm. I think cognitive dissonance is sort of like arrhythmia. Last week, as we began this series, uh, we recited Psalm 137, which, as Megan reminded us, is, is a lament, it's a lamentation, Which was composed by one of those Babylonian exiles who was feeling the effects of cognitive dissonance. He was chosen of God, but he was feeling rather unchosen in the exile. We remember his beautiful music. By the rivers of Babylon, we wept when we remembered home. We hung our harps in the branches of the trees. For there our captors ask us for songs, our tormentors ask for mirth saying, sing us one of those old songs that you used to sing at church. But we looked at each other and said, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign place? In the Jewish mindset from this time forward, exile would become a metaphor for the human condition. As the people of God tried to make sense of their suffering and of their situation, they began to understand that the ethos of exile is universal. In other words, it's something that we all struggle with. In fact, ever since the garden, we've known exile. Ever since Adam and Eve's disobedience, when God banished them, evicted them from Eden, we've been homesick That's an interesting metaphor for exile, homesick. Of course, you know that exile is more than a geographical idea. You can be in exile in your own homeland. You can be in exile in your own home. In fact, you can be in exile in your own room. And so there's much to glean, I think, from this phase in Judah's history that gives perhaps perspective to our own cognitive dissonance in lieu of the pandemic. And so for the next three weeks, we're gonna look through the eyes of three different prophets who actually lived through the exile, namely Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah. I wanna begin this morning with the prophet Jeremiah. He is appropriately called the weeping prophet. He was a PK preacher's kid, or a T.O., as we might call them, theological offspring. His father, Hilkiah, was a priest in Jerusalem. Jeremiah was born in Anatoth, a little village two and a half miles northeast of Jerusalem. Indeed, Jeremiah grew up to serve as a priest in the final decades of the southern kingdom. Jeremiah saw beyond the curtain He saw beyond the chancel. He saw the corruption and deterioration of Judah's leadership, and he could not be silent. After all, when you examine his calling in Jeremiah 1, verse 10, he was called of God, listen to this, to pluck up and pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, and also to build and plant. Now, we tend to highlight or underscore the building and planting, but we cannot neglect the plucking up and the pulling down. In fact, you know it's true that you can't really plant until you pluck. And we've read this morning, Alex, you read for us from a section of Jeremiah's prophecy called the book of consolation. It makes up four chapters in Jeremiah chapters 30 through 33. And so between all of the judgment that we hear from Jeremiah, there's four chapters that are an oasis of hope. But you cannot bypass the first 24 chapters that speak of the need for repentance and of God's judgment. Such is the task of a prophet, not just to comfort the afflicted, but to afflict the comfortable. And boy, Jeremiah knew how to afflict the comfortable. He had two issues. If you read the entirety of Jeremiah's prophecy, he had two issues with Judah. Number one, idolatry. Number two, injustice. Though the people of God continued to maintain temple worship, the land was full of Canaanite shrines worshiping canaanite gods some had even adopted the horrid practice of child sacrifice and jeremiah speaks of their idolatry in terms of adultery he says it's like prostitution it's it's promiscuity in essence he says what you're doing is you're cheating on god they were not keeping the covenant and there are consequences to reneging on the covenant Of course, we all know that idolatry also gives way to injustice, and what Jeremiah saw was injustice in the land in that the most vulnerable people among them were being mistreated, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, were being overlooked, ignored, and abused, and nobody seemed to care. In chapter 2, verse 13, Jeremiah cites his charge against Judah for my people have done two evil things he says they have forsaken me says the Lord the fountain of living water and they have built for themselves broken cisterns that don't hold water you've heard that phrase that idiom before what you're saying doesn't hold water with me in other words it doesn't add up but what happens to a nation when what they say doesn't hold water anymore? What happens to a prophet when his word doesn't hold water? What happens to a church? What happens to an institution when what they stand for doesn't hold water anymore? Well, you know the answer to that. They become ripe for conquest. And Jeremiah foretells that there will be enemies that come from the north and besiege Jerusalem and deport the nation. And it happens exactly as he said. History tells us that there were at least two expulsions or two deportations from Jerusalem to Babylon. We said last week... It took them four months on that trail to go 900 miles. There were two deportations. The first happened in 597 B.C., the second in 586. Soon after the first deportation, there was a sense in Judah that perhaps the exile might be short-lived. In fact, many, if not most, of the priests and the prophets who remained in Jerusalem, preached this message. They preached resistance. Resist Babylon. It won't be long before God's going to bring us home. But Jeremiah vehemently disagreed. In fact, he said the exact opposite. We know that because we have an excerpt of a letter that Jeremiah wrote to those Babylonian exiles in Jeremiah chapter 29. This is what he said. Do not resist, submit yourselves, accept your fate, go ahead and build your homes there, plant your gardens, have babies, marry your children, raise your families, get on with your life, even in exile, because it will be 70 years before God will bring you back home. 70 years, think about it. That's a lifetime. And so when the people read this letter who are in exile, they're thinking, we're not going back. Almost none of those who left Jerusalem will return to Jerusalem. They are told by Jeremiah it's going to be a long time, so get on with life. But it was the P.S. that Jeremiah added in the letter that got him in trouble with his people. Seek The welfare of the city, he writes, that's Babylon, where I have sent you into exile. Seek their welfare. And pray to the Lord on their behalf, for in their welfare you will find your own welfare. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Now, as you can imagine, that last line got Jeremiah in a heap of trouble. And you can understand why. Jeremiah was not the only prophet in town. There were other preachers in Judah, and they were speaking a different message in the name of God. In fact, one of them, we know his name, was Brother Hananiah. He was a very popular preacher. In fact, he was a television preacher. He was a New York Times best-selling author, and he had a different message from Jeremiah. He said... Resist, Nebuchadnezzar, resist this exile thing with everything you've got, for God will bring you back home in two years. Now, I want you to think about it. If you're one of those refugees living in exile, living in a tent next to an irrigation ditch, whose message would you prefer to hear? Two years? Two years? or 70 years. Well, I can tell you, for me, I'll take Brother Hananiah seven days a week and twice on Sunday. He's saying what I want to hear. I saw a cartoon the other day I've been anxious to share with you. It's a picture of two booths. One says, comforting lies. The other says, unpleasant truths. And as you can see from the image, one line is a little bit longer than the other. I prefer to hear Hananiah over Jeremiah. There's another cartoon I love. It's of two people walking down the sidewalk. One says to the other, my desire to be well-informed is currently at odds with my desire to remain sane. Talk about cognitive distance. We know the feeling. There is much to hear during this pandemic that I'd rather not hear I'd rather have some comforting lies than unpleasant truths. And so it was in Judah. In fact, Jeremiah's colleagues so objected with him, they threw him in a pit where they intended to starve him to death. They said he is guilty of treason. He's preaching judgment against Judah. He's saying, submit to the enemy. And pray for the good of Babylon? He's a turncoat. He's a deserter. He's a Benedict Arnold. He's a Judas. And you wouldn't have liked his preaching any more than they did or than I do. In fact, if you'd been on the Staff Parish Relations Committee at First Church Jerusalem, you would have called the bishop on your cell phone and said, get rid of Jeremiah, send us Brother Hananiah. One of the best preacher fights I've ever seen in my life was on the streets of Jerusalem when Jeremiah, as an object lesson to the people saying, submit to Babylon, came down wearing the yoke, a wooden yoke of an oxen, and Hananiah blew his top, tackled Jeremiah in the streets, broke that yoke to smithereens and said, this is what God will do to Nebuchadnezzar in less than two years. And Jeremiah looked at him and said, you have broken the yoke of wood and now we will receive a yoke of iron. It's going to be a while in exile. But the problem with Hananiah's ministry was this. Nothing Hananiah said ever happened. And everything Jeremiah said happened well now this presents us with a little quandary doesn't it it's not always obvious in the present to discern who the prophet is and who the wishful thinker is it's not always apparent in my eyes who is speaking for God and who's blowing their own horn I think this is why sometimes we have to take the Gamaliel approach. Do you know the Gamaliel approach? You remember the name Gamaliel? You can see him in Acts chapter 5. He was a leader of the Pharisees. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. And one day they brought some of Jesus' disciples in to be interrogated, to be deposed by the Sanhedrin. They were guilty of causing a riot at the temple in the name of Jesus, a name that the Sanhedrin commanded them never to speak. And some of the Pharisees wanted to throw those disciples in the pit, get rid of them. But it was Gamaliel, who was a member of the Sanhedrin, who disagreed with the disciples of Jesus, but who stood up and said, let them be. Release them, let them go. If their undertaking is of human origin, it will gradually play out. But if their mission is of God, you won't be able to stop them and you may find yourself fighting against God and you really don't want to do that. You can't always know in the present but then faith isn't necessarily the same thing as knowing. It's trusting even when you don't know. It's believing even when you can't see the future, even when you can't see the outcome. I don't know about you, but the last few months, I have spent way too much energy resisting the crisis instead of learning from the crisis and trusting God in the midst of the crisis. If Hananiah's word had come true, the crowds would have cheered, but Judah would have been crushed. They would have been wiped out. You would have never heard. We wouldn't be here. They would have been extinct. The Jews would have been a footnote of history. But Jeremiah could see underneath the crisis. He saw a deeper purpose. He saw a divine purpose. And after all that judgment, the man preaches hope. After all that plucking up, now he's going to seed hope. And say, in essence, to the people, in spite of all appearances to the contrary, God is at work in the exile. He is working in the crisis. He is doing something new. He is actually recalibrating your faith. All three prophets who endured the exile agreed. Ezekiel said, God's creating a new heart. Isaiah said... God's doing a new thing. Jeremiah said God is enacting a new covenant. It's all about something new in the midst of a crisis. Says Jeremiah, this new covenant's not going to be like the old one where God writes the law on stone. No, he's going to write his law on our hearts. What does that mean? In the surrounding Canaanite culture... There was a practice in ancient days called extispacy where diviners would do pathology, examine the entrails of a sacrificed ram, looking and searching for some divine message etched or inscribed in the organs of the animal, in the liver, the lungs, and especially in the heart. And Jeremiah had this practice in mind as he perceives that God is about to do a new thing in our hearts. He's going to engrave his law, his law of love, in our hearts and change us from the inside out. It's so interesting to me because a few chapters earlier in chapter 17, verse 1, Jeremiah had been complaining about the stubbornness of the heart of his people. He said, the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of the heart. But in chapter 31, God is now engraving in our hearts his law of love. Wesley called it holiness of heart which is going to empower and enable us to be holy, to be gracious, to be merciful, to be just, even in our exile. This new covenant, birthed in the heart of a prophet, would ultimately be fulfilled seven centuries later in the coming of Christ. And in our exile, Christ not only will provide us a way home he will become our home last word i love the story of the grandfather in his easy chair one evening he was holding his little granddaughter in his lap and she was mesmerized by his face and by his hair touching his eyebrows his cheeks and she looked at the old man and said, granddaddy, why is your hair so white and your skin so wrinkled? And he chuckled to himself and put his hands on her face and said, honey, it's because your granddaddy's old. And she said, granddaddy, I want you new. <laughs> I want you new. That's what God wants. That's what God is doing. The lesson learned from the quarantine is that God can bring renewal even in our cognitive dissonance. Even in a crisis, God is up to something good. He's making all things new. That's what the exodus is all about. That's what the exile is all about. That's what Easter is all about. That's what the gospel is all about. What Man intends for evil, God can use for good. You can bank on it, not because you trust in Nebuchadnezzar or Pharaoh or Caesar, but because you believe in God. And because of that, you can live in trust even when you don't know the outcome. May it be written on our hearts. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.